0: Whose side are you on? The issue at stake was far more important than that. The European Football Championship was about to start and England were due to play Scotland in the group stage. Come on, Andrew. Whose side are you on? I was asked again because I tried to duck the question the first time. Was I supporting the land of my birth? the country that I spent the first thirty-four years of my life cheering on? Or was I supporting the land that I now call home, the place that I deeply love and feel privileged to be a part of? England or Scotland, whose side was I on? And the questioner, who was very much Scottish, proudly dressed as he was in his kilt, was certainly hoping for one answer in particular. Didn't get it. My answer was that I wanted both teams to win and would be. I vividly remember being asked that question a few years ago. I was in the Macri Hotel at the wedding reception of Andrew and Anna McFarlane. But the questioner was not asking me whether I was on the side of the bride or the groom. Oh no, supporting both of them throughout the tournament. He turned round to me and said, well, that was a load of rubbish. And when kickoff came, I would know whose side I was really on. I was a little relieved that he didn't watch the game with me, and even more relieved when the game finished a nil-nil draw. Whose side are you on? I guess it's a question that we've all had thrust at us in recent years. Rarely has there been a time in history where society has been so deeply divided. Were you pro-the Union or pro-Scottish independence? Were you pro-EU or pro-Brexit? At the last general election, did you vote for Boris Johnson's Conservatives or anyone but him? Are you wanting more distilleries on Isla and the new housing that should come with them? Or are you disillusioned by what Isla is becoming? Whose side are you on? And I'm sure you've debated all of these in your homes and in coffee shops and on street corners. For very few of these issues, though, can you sit on the fence like I did with the football. We've had to take one side or the other. And very often this has caused tension between us and our family and our friends. The answer to the question, whose side are you on, always Has consequences. In our passage tonight, we heard Jesus speaking to the crowds in Jerusalem for the very last time. Next time the crowds will see Jesus is when he is on trial. Jesus has one final opportunity to try and make an impact upon them. And what does he do with it? Well, he effectively cries out the question People of Jerusalem, whose side are you on? Are you with me or the religious leaders? With God or with the world? Are you going to walk in the light or hide in the shadows? Will you believe or remain stuck in your unbelief? Whose side are you on? It's time for you to make up your minds. And of course, we today cannot read this passage without hearing Jesus asking the exact same question of us here on Isla in 2023. Are we with Jesus or not? It's decision time. Our passage begins by stating the very sad reality that many of the Jews in the first century remained in a place of unbelief. I'd like us to notice some characteristics of the unbelief that Jesus found himself coming up against. First, it was stubborn. It was stubborn unbelief. Listen again to our first verse, verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. They still would not believe in him. Just think of the incredible seven signs that the crowds have witnessed in this gospel. Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding. Jesus healed the son of that important official without even visiting him. Jesus healed a man who'd laid paralyzed for 38 years. He fed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. He walked on water through a storm. Jesus has given sight to a blind man and raised Lazarus from the dead. These are seven incredible, miraculous signs done in full public view for everyone to see. And John even tells us that Jesus had done more than this. But these are the seven that he'd chosen to detail for us. Seven signs that show Jesus to be truly God, the creator, the liberator of human beings, the healer of creation, the Lord over life and death. The crowd have had plenty of proof as to who he is, but they have stubbornly rejected the evidence that was right before their very eyes. Now, why would they do that? Well, because sin is at play here. The unbelief of the crowds was not just stubborn unbelief. It was sinful unbelief. Ever since the dawn of time, human beings have had a free choice as to whether to choose to accept God or to reject him. This is what the Adam and Eve story is about right at the beginning of our Bibles. God created human beings with the capacity to love. What he wants most of all is a loving relationship with each one of us. True love can never be forced. So God made us with the ability to choose him or choose against him. And every time we reject God, whether consciously or not, we sin. We do exactly what Adam and Eve did when they bit into the forbidden fruit. And we pick this teaching up from the second quote John inserts from the prophet Isaiah. We'll come back to the first one in a moment. In verse 40 of our passage we read, "...He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn." And I would heal them. Now if you go home and look that up, you will find that that is from Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah chapter 6 is a very bittersweet chapter. Isaiah gets this incredible call from God. He's to go out and speak God's word to all the people. An incredible privilege. But God warns Isaiah in advance That precisely because he is speaking God's word, people will reject him. Time and time again, Isaiah's words and warnings would be ignored. But Isaiah must never give up. He must go on speaking what God has for him to say. Now, why is Isaiah to do that? Because through his words, God would bring his judgment. Now here is the hard truth about sin. A truth that should frighten and humble us all. God will let us reject him. Time and time again, he will let us turn down his generous invitations. He will let us harden our hearts against him. But there comes a time for all human beings where eventually God decides to confirm our choice at some time a time known only to God God finally decides right they can have what they want they have persistently rejected me, they have chosen against me now I will harden their hearts they've closed their eyes so tightly shut so they can't look at my love Now I will let their eyes remain blinded forever. They've made their choice. I won't keep offering anymore. They can stick with it. This is the reality of sin. Sin leads us to unbelief. Sin leads us to stubbornly reject our loving creator. And if we persistently remain in sin, consciously, without ever turning from it, we will end up with hard hearts and blind eyes. We have been warned. It was true for those listening to Isaiah. It was true for those listening to Jesus in the first century. And it's true for many as they hear the gospel today. A third thing that I'd like us to notice about the unbelief of the crowds is their desire for secrecy. John explains that a major reason for them remaining in unbelief Was peer pressure. Verses 42 and 43. At the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. In Jesus' day, many people were afraid of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They lived in fear of being put out of the synagogue. The synagogue was more than just a place of worship. In a world without benefits or social services or food banks, the synagogue offered community and life support to the vulnerable. If you were put out of the synagogue, you would lose your family and your friends, and very often the means for survival. And of course, that gave huge power to the religious leaders in charge of it. Again, these verses are quite blunt and humbling to read. John says there were even some religious leaders who did believe in Jesus, but they refused to speak up out of fear of losing their place. Fear of losing their status and position. Sadly, self-importance got in the way of belief for them. Can we see? This desire to remain secret prevented many from taking that public step of faith that is so important if we are to follow Jesus. If we try to maintain faith in secret, gradually we will find ourselves isolated, cut off with no support or encouragement or friendship from other believers. People who try to maintain faith in secret will eventually start to drift away sooner or later. In the Bible, there is no such thing as a totally secret disciple. If you try to remain in secrecy at some point, you will find yourself back in the position of unbelief. Now, it's fair to say that this sermon has not started on the cheeriest of notes. We've had a challenge issued to us. Whose side are you on? And we have then recognized how many of the crowd in the first century chose against the side of Jesus. This is a warning to us about the power of sin to blind and enslave us. A warning that is still relevant today. But before we move on to the second half of the passage, there is one more thing to know. Something that will bring a little hope and positivity back to us. Many of the crowds were stuck in their stubborn, sinful unbelief, this unbelief born out of the desire to be secret. But here's the thing. Despite the sadness of all of that, God remained sovereign. Do you remember the story of the Exodus from the Old Testament? Pharaoh witnessed God do many miraculous signs, but after each one, he refused to let the people go. And the Bible says he hardened his heart against God. But what was the result of all of that? Well, the result was that when God did eventually liberate Israel from Egypt, it was all the more dramatic. The great plague of death, the passing through the Red Sea. These were astonishing events that really brought glory to God. Indeed, what was going on in Jerusalem as this passage was taking place? It was the Passover festival. Hundreds of years later, people were still celebrating and worshipping God for how he brought Israel out of Egypt. God remained sovereign over Pharaoh's unbelief and brought glory to himself out of it. Well, now look at verse 38, the other quote from the prophet Isaiah. Even after Jesus performed all these signs and they wouldn't believe in him, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John says that Isaiah foresaw that the crowds would reject God's servant. Now that quote in verse 38 Comes from the beginning of Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It tells the story of how God will send his servant into the world. And that servant would be treated horrendously. He would be punished and afflicted. And eventually he would go to his death. But through his death. God would take all the transgression, all the iniquity of the world, and put it onto him. And by doing so, his people would go free. Can you see what John is saying? Large parts of the crowd are sinfully rejecting Jesus, but God remains sovereign over their unbelief. And it's going to be through their unbelief... That the cross is going to come about and God's salvation plans will come to be. Human beings are free to reject God, but they will never overcome his sovereignty. He will always be God, always be Lord of all. And God can take the worst of our responses to him and turn them to his benefit. And we should be very grateful for that. So the first part of our passage is a rather blunt assessment of unbelief in Israel in the first century, and thereby a judgment also on the unbelief in our world today. People still stubbornly reject God despite the evidence before their eyes. They still persist in their sin despite the warnings. They still prefer the comfort of secrecy rather than getting baptized and making a public confession of faith. Nothing has changed. But despite this passage being so honest about the rejection that many give to God, this is clearly not what God wants. God loves his people. He yearns to save and rescue them. And that is why Jesus came in the first place. The second half of our reading then, in verses 44 to 50, is Jesus crying out to the crowd one last he gives this succinct summary of all that he's taught them and shown them over the last three years and he urges them finally to step out and put their trust in him in just a few verses there are some great riches here that i'm just going to try and rattle through in verse 44 jesus says he has been sent by god How else could he do the miraculous signs that he did? He has been sent direct from heaven to save the people from their desperate situation. He is God's rescue package. Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. In verse 45, Jesus reminds the crowds about how he is the perfect image of God. The one perfect human being that truly reflects what God is like. He says, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. And we've already talked about the miracles that Jesus has done. But remember also his acts of compassion and justice. The way that he talks so kindly to the Samaritan woman at the well. The way that he helped the woman who'd been caught in adultery and protected her from stoning. In all of these acts, Jesus is demonstrating to us what God is like. Demonstrating the heart behind the power. No one else would have done these things for others. In verse 46, Jesus reminds the crowds of his claim to be the light of the world. I have come into the world as a light. So that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus came into our world just as it is. Full of darkness and despair. And he came to bring hope and life. He he came to guide the people through their pain and confusion. He came to lead us to growth. And still today, it's only Jesus that can truly lighten our lives. In the face of such evil and suffering and pain that we witness on the TV... And are subjected personally to day by day. If we reject Jesus, the light, we condemn ourselves to just stumbling around in the dark, frightened and disorientated forevermore. Sorry, is John here, no? yeah. you get, sorry. Okay. That's fine, no worries. I something to you. I was your son. No problem. <laughs> In verses 47 to 49, Jesus urges the crowd to remember him as a speaker of truth. He says that he came into the world to save it. He hasn't come to judge or condemn it. He's come on a mission of rescue and love. But that said, throughout his life, Jesus has spoken the truth. He has spoken the words that his father commanded him to say. And what that means is that all those Jews who heard Jesus in the first century and all of us who have read what he said all these years later, we are now without excuse. We can never pretend that we've not heard Jesus' teaching. If we reject his words of truth and love, words that have the power to heal and restore, then those very words will come back to judge us. One day we will stand before God's throne and we will be held to account as to whether we have believed or followed them or not. Now that is a sober thought indeed. But Jesus finishes with a glorious promise. He was sent by God. He was the image of God, the light of the world, the speaker of truth. But perhaps above all, he is the bringer of eternal life. In verse 50, it says that if we follow God's command through Jesus, it will lead to eternal life. You know, we will never understand God until we realize that he is just as pained by death as we are. In fact, more so. Ever since the fall of human beings, when death came careering into the world, God has wanted to put an end to it. And Jesus came to give his life on the cross to forgive us. And then defeat death through resurrection. He came to bring eternal life to those who believe in him. This then is Jesus' final cry to the crowds. His last desperate call. His great offer and invitation. Reject me and you will remain in your sin. And you will die. Believe in me. And you will know life everlasting. Come on. Move from your unbelief. And believe in me. There is only one way that we can finish this sermon. And that's by returning to the question that started it. Whose side are we on? We've had the two choices laid out before us quite clearly now. Are we on the side of Jesus or those who decry him as a fake? Are we on the side of God or the temptations and lies of this world? Are we on the side of the light or the dark? Life or death? Belief or unbelief? We've all been in that stubborn and sinful and secret category at times. We've all heard God's word and ignored it in the past. Let's hear Jesus' final call and follow him today. And of course, as we see Jesus here lifting up his head and calling out this last loving invitation to the crowds, we're reminded that he is still looking for people who will bravely cry out for him into the world. So if we have already placed ourselves on Jesus' side, we too now have a part to play to announce him to the world and declare his love and urge others to believe in him too.